I invite you again, if you have your Bibles, to please turn with me to First Corinthians chapter 7. We continue our verse-by-verse exposition of this book. We've come now to verse 8. And I've entitled my message, To Marry or Not to Marry? What a question. I was thinking of asking, is that really a question? Now, having responded quite forcefully and clearly to the Corinthians regarding the ownership of the spouse's body when it comes to sexual relationships within marriage, that's what we dealt with in the first few verses, Paul now turns to another group within the family, singles. He turns to singles and deals with how they are to deal with sexuality in their lives, how they are to deal with marriage. But as usual, we'll go verse by verse. I call this one truth at a time exposition. That's in contrast to what the more accomplished preachers would call the big idea exposition. And my model for doing this is Ezra. And in the book of Nehemiah, he gives the model for what I call truth-by-truth exposition. Remember the story. They finally found the book of the law, meaning the five books of Moses that had been lost for some time. And they were so delighted now Ezra, the priest, gathered the people together. And he is going to read the word of God to the people. And this is what it says. In Ezra, chapter 7, I think it is, verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. The verses before this told us that he actually made a podium. So right now, I am being very biblical. (laughs) I am standing on a podium above the people. And when he opened it, All the people stood up, showing reverence for the word for which we have lost respect through the years. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. amen." While lifting up their hands. While lifting up their hands. Amen, amen. Some of us here at Calvary are afraid to do that. But these folk did. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I attended a service some time ago when a lady actually did this. She left her seat. She walked down the aisle. And we were singing a wonderful song. And she actually prostrated herself before the Lord. And at first everybody was looking, looking, sort of, you know, why are you doing this? But then as we sung that song, focused on the majesty of God, the awesomeness of God, we all wish we had the nerve to do the same thing. They worship the Lord. 
Also, the Levites explain the law to the people. Notice the word explain. While the people remained in their place, they read from the book from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Notice verse 8. They read from the book. That's the word of God, the law of God. Translating to give what? The sense. So that they what? Understood the reading. Most preaching do not practice this today. Very few go to the book and stay in the book. They go to the book and leave it and then go to their book. They, to give the sense so that they understood the reading. This is my model for what I call truth by truth exposition. And so I do not call this a running commentary, as so many accomplished preachers belittle. I look at this as a truth by truth exposition, meaning the truth of the text is explained as it is stated in the text. In most cases, sometimes you have to go ahead or go backwards. So let's look now at verse 8. To begin today, our one truth at a time exposition of this passage. This is Paul's advice to the single person. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Notice carefully. Paul defines the single to whom he is writing his advice. He says to the unmarried. This I believe means the never married. I call them the pure or the true single. Widows. These are those whose spouse has died. They were married but now they are single again through death. The single again is a term that we've come up with more or less recently. But now let's look at the single state because we have to realize that there are more than just these two. First, in the single categories, as I mentioned, there's a never married or the pure or true single. Now there are two groups here. You have some who want to get married, and you have some who don't want to get married. That's the never married. Then you have the widows and widows, those whose spouse has died. They were married, but now are single again through death. Now, the two groupings here as well. Some have children. Some do not have children. Is the third group, those who are still married but separated. Now there's a grouping in here as well, subgrouping. Some are legally separated. Some are not legally separated. People like to call them estranged singles. People say to be more accurately, they're not estranged singles, they're actually estranged married people. Number four. Those who were married, but are now divorced. Now, there's a grouping here as well. Some have children. I call them the single again parent. Some do not have children. 
They had a single against single. That's some of the divisions. Now, we could go and get some even more subcategories. But the big problem practically here is that single people today in each of these groups wanted to be regarded as distinct from the others. I have different concerns and needs than all the other subcategories. And so we have a problem, practically speaking, in dealing with singles in the church because of the day they want to be treated. As a result of this, some misconceptions have arisen, especially with Christians, but not only with Christians, concerning singles. Here are some of them. First, some believe that the single state is better than the marriage state. And they go to Paul to show that. Some believe that the single person is special and unique. I believe too many think that one, by the way. Too many think that way. Then thirdly, some believe that the single person should be treated as a single person, not as a member of their family. You see what I mean by that? Well, when you invite the family to a party, they don't want to come. Why? Because I'm a single person. You're inviting the family. Now you say, no, no, that's, but that is true. You have in a church where some young adults don't want to go to events where the family is invited because they feel like they have to be treated as a single person rather than as a part of a family. Then there's a fourth one. And that the single person is abnormal because everybody should be married. Now most Christians believe this. You know how I know that? Because every time you see a young person who's 18 or 19 or 20, you married yet? Isn't that right? Implying that if you're not, something wrong with you somewhere. I got to fix you up. And so we have all kinds of people who want to become matchmakers because they have the feeling, the inbuilt, hey, you're supposed to be married. If you're not, you're abnormal. Then there are some who say that the single person should not be give, given a place of leadership in the church. These are some of the misconceptions. Now, one of the things that we'll find as we go to the passage this morning, Paul answers most of these questions, but not all of them. Here's his first piece of advice to the single person. It is good for them to remain even as I. Paul's initial advice to singles is it's good to remain celibate. Let's put that word in there. Not just single, but celibate. Now, good here means it's okay, it's proper. Not that it is qualitatively good. All right? It's just, it's all right. It's appropriate. And remember now, in the context that this is taken from. Paul is responding to a twofold concern of the Corinthians, and we must never forget that when we read this passage. First, he's responding to those who reflect the Greek philosophy of the day that all that was physical was bad or evil. Therefore, Christians should not engage in sexual activity, even with their wives, because that was a physical act. It was not a good thing to do. And secondly, seeing that some have come to Christ after they were married in this pagan city, 
Some were asking, was it proper for Christians to have sexual relations with their unsaved spouse? That was another concern. Paul is responding to these concerns and these questions in this passage. It's important to keep that in mind. Notice he says, notice the text, remain single. Stay in your present state. Don't go across the border. It's a good state to be in and to stay in. But now you see, this is where the importance of context comes in. And it also shows some dangers of verse-to-verse exposition. Because if you don't take the whole thing into context, you can have a problem. So we must see the whole context. So now go in your Bibles and go forward to verse 26. And then we look at verse 32 as well to get the whole truth of Paul's advice in this passage. First then, verse 26. He says, I think then that this is good. That doesn't stop there. This is good in view of the present distress. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. So Paul modifies his opening statement. It is not black and white as it first appears to be. There are conditions, or we might say mitigating circumstances, that may cause the initial directive not to be heeded. The first mitigating circumstance is the present distress. Meaning, in the historical context, the persecution that was going on at the time by the Roman Empire against Christians. It was a persecution going on. That was the present distress. Paul says, now in this condition, in this situation, don't get married. It isn't a wise thing to do. He isn't saying marriage is wrong for you. He's just saying it's the wrong time to do it. In other words, he's saying, if this present distress was not present, his advice would not be the same. He'd probably say, hey, go ahead, get married, like all the other people do. But he says, not in this case right now. That might not be a wise thing to do. And so stay in this state. Don't go across the border into the state of marriage right now. But then there's a second mitigating circumstance as well. And actually it's based on the first one. Notice what he says, verse 32. I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, or at least should be. How he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. How he may please his wife. I want you to see that. He's saying that pleasing your wife is of the world. But remember now, we've got to get context. So don't take it out of context yet, ladies or gentlemen, all right? But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. Double focus. Now notice the phrase, free from concern. Now notice, it's free from concern in the present distress. If there wasn't any present distress, this concern wouldn't be there. Do you understand it? 
in view of the present distress, Paul had a concern. Marriage, Paul is saying, would just add to the pressures and complications of life. His rationale then is that a single person could live undistracted from his or her devotion to Jesus Christ, whereas the married person has a divided devotion between his or her spouse and the Lord. Now be careful here. Paul does not mean that it is wrong or improper for a married couple to have this divided devotion. If you are married, you got to have this divided devotion. You've got to be devoted to your wife, your husband, and you've got to be devoted to God. This is where priorities come in. So Paul isn't condemning the divided devotion. He's just saying, hey, that's the facts of life. That's just the way it is. If you're married, you have a concern other than Jesus Christ. You have a concern of your spouse, how to care for her, how to care for him. He's simply being practical. And we all know what he is saying is true. Isn't that right? We all know that. But I don't want us to get the wrong impression here that Paul is saying it is wrong to have a devotion to our spouse. He isn't saying that. He's just simply stating a fact. Because remember now, Paul commands the husband to what? Love his wife. Not just love his wife. As Christ loved the church. Sacrificially. That's complete devotion. And so Paul is stressing that in times of abnormal stress or pressures, it might not be a wise thing to get married. That's what he's saying to the person who's unmarried. By the way, don't miss it. This passage also suggests that Paul is encouraging single people to be devoted to the Lord. Single people should be devoted to Christ. Single people should be actively involved in the Lord's service. That's what Paul is implying here very strongly. You see, Paul in this verse is specifically addressing men as leaders in a marriage situation, as he does. In fact, as very beginning in Genesis, a man shall leave. It's the man who is mentioned here. The same thing here with the leadership. It's the man that is being addressed here. But he goes on to say the thing, things about the woman nonetheless. Notice what it says. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. That should be a consuming passion of a single woman. Purity of life and complete devotion to God. Peter deals with this in 1 Peter 3, 2 and 3. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. How she may please her husband. You see, the things of the world in itself, in this context, is not necessarily sinful. It's how we use them. Paul tells us all things belong to us. Everything in the world belongs to us. But we shouldn't what? Abuse it. Marriage is a part of the world. The creation of God. That's a part of it. It's only evil and wrong when we take God out of it. 
Worldliness means God has no impact, influence in what we do or think. Notice carefully, Paul says, the woman who is unmarried and the virgin. I don't, I've asked this. Two different people have talk, spoken about here. You're talking about the virgin who has never been married. We know that. That's the idea of the word. The unmarried woman, though, could be referring to a widow. Some would say that they're even referring to the divorced person. But for reasons that I will give as we go on later in the passage, I don't believe we could substantiate that from the text. But he's talking about probably the widow and the unmarried woman. All right? Now, look at verse 35. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Paul says, this is why I'm giving you this advice, single people. I'm looking at circumstances. I'm concerned about how circumstances, things in the world could impact you as an individual and your relationship to God. If you have a deep commitment to God to serve him, hey, this is not the time to get married. So Paul now clearly and precisely states the underlying motivating factor for a single person to remain single. That's un distracted devotion to the Lord. The bottom line teaching then is what we may call the intention of the author for this passage. The intention of the author of this passage is this. In the midst of unusual and unordinary pressures of life, it is better for a single person who truly wants to serve the Lord to remain single. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. But now Paul adds even another mitigating circumstance that would negate that advice he just gave. That's what he's been doing all the past. He's given one advice and then given mitigating circumstances would negate it. He's doing the same thing here. Notice what he says in verse 9. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, I really didn't comprehend the weight and the awesomeness of this statement until I was doing a restudy of this passage. I've said this passage again and again. That's one of the reasons I never simply take up a message I had preached before and simply preach it again. But I restudy the whole thing. For this kind of a reason. Many times God teaches you new things or show you that you taught something wrong the first time. But this is a tremendous passage here. Look at it carefully. The word of God. In the overall context. Paul is actually saying, even for the single person who has a strong desire to serve the Lord, and even in times of unusual stress and pressures, if you cannot control your hormones, get married. That's what he's saying. 
Now, don't just overlook that, because who gave us our hormones? So this isn't just a psychological thing here. This has to do with two divine principles. I was going to say clashing, but it's not a clash. But meeting with one another. If you cannot control your God-given hormones, get married. Now here, he does use a qualitative word. He says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Wow. Paul is actually saying, now hold on to your socks. In times of unusual and extraordinary stress, your hormones take priority over your devotion to the Lord. You say, Whoo, well, I got to qualify that. Now, I've never really seen this passage in this light, but here it is. It's a powerful statement in regard to satisfying the natural desires that God himself has placed within our constitution as human beings. Now, I'm still trying to take this all in. That's what it means. But as I was contemplating this passage, this principle, it reminded me of what Jesus taught regarding holding grudges. Having an unforgiving spirit and being at odds with a brother and sister and not doing anything about it. You remember what he said? It's more important at the moment for you to get right with your brother and sister than to come and worship. Why? Because I'm not going to accept your worship anyway. Now, he isn't saying that getting right with your brother is better than worship. He isn't saying that. He's just saying now, hey, in this particular instance, you can't worship unless you take care of the passage. Not the passage, you take care of the, the problem. Now here, Paul is saying, if your God-given hormones are raging in such a way that you could end up committing fornication, get married. Don't talk about staying single to serve the Lord with complete dedication. He says, to avoid fornication is more important than serving the Lord 24-7 while committing fornication. You understand what I'm saying? That's what he's saying. To put it plain and simple, if you have sexually self-control problems, get married. Remember now in verse 7, Paul reveals that the ability to control one's sexual urges is a gift from God. It is, to control it. In other words, if you have the God-given capacity to put a cap on that raging passion, to put that cement in there to push it down, if you have the capacity, do it. Otherwise, it could cause all kinds of trouble and impact all kinds of people, just like that oil spill. That's what he's saying. If you can cap it off, that's a sign that you have the gift of celibacy. But if you can and you are going to cause pollution to everybody you meet, you better get married. So, the more correct and complete statement then would be, 
If you don't have the gift of celibacy, get married. You're burning when ignited and satisfied God's way will turn into a non-consuming blaze that radiates the glory of God, just like Moses' burning bush did. It was burning, but it was not being consumed, and God was being glorified. That's what happens when a person responds to God's teaching here concerning his sexual life. Marriage doesn't put the burning out. It simply controls the effect and it lights up what or who God has designed it to light up. So God says, you can glorify me by obeying these words here. Paul then applies this truth specifically and especially to younger widows. In 1 Timothy 5, and this is one of the passages that women like to use when they call Paul a male chauvinist. Now again, ladies, I had a lot of trouble last time. Please don't blame me for what Paul says here. I didn't tell him to write it. God did. Listen to him now. Young widows. Refuse to put younger widows on the list. That's the list for aid in the church. For when they feel, notice now, sensual desires in disregard of Christ. See there? Priorities are turned around. They want to get married. Thus incurring condemnation. Why? Because they have set aside their previous pledge. There seems to be, historically speaking, and this is not recorded, this is implications, is that before a widow was re able to receive any kinds of help from the church and she was put on the list, she had to make a promise that she wouldn't be involved in sexual activities. And even getting them married. Verse 13. In other words, let me get back to this. In other words, for a widow, a young widow, to be involved in sexual activity disqualifies her from any kind of help from the church, even though her husband is dead. Verse 13. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. End of quote. I didn't write that. I'm just doing what I'm told. I'm reading it and explaining it. God says... Marriage for the single person solves two major problems. I call them the raging hormone problem and the running mouth problem. <laughs> Here is his remedy. Verse 14. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married. Bear children. He didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. Keep house. And give the enemy no occasion for reproach. I want you to see every word written here now. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. How? By not doing these things. So here's the advice to young widows. Get married. Now, of course, later on we're going to see that Paul makes the stipulation that when you get married, you have to marry a believer. 
not an unbeliever. You have to marry a Christian. And we're going to come to that because, you see, just because Paul says get married to kill, he doesn't mean go shack up at anybody you can get. Or anyone who comes along and you get married, whether it's saved or unsaved, because you're satisfying. or in, No, 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 no. It has to be a believer in Christ. You'll see that later on. Get married. Now, here's a part we don't like today. Have children. Wow. For most young marriages today, women, they would say, man, that's exactly the time not to have children when you're young. You've got to have fun. You've got to make something for yourself. You've got to see the sights. Not according to this. Have children. Now, I think most of you who come to Calvary know my view on children and parents. I, I wish I could take the, uh, uh, what you say, take the benefit for David and the Albury family because they got a big family and they having children in the young age. And I think that's beautiful. Now, I believe soon David and those will have their own denomination. (laughs) But I'm serious. I am serious here. This is what the Bible teaches. This is how God's image, according to Genesis 1, because remember, husband and wife made in the image of God. And marriage is to show what God is like. And procreation is a way that is done. All right. Third. Now, please don't lock this door, ushers, because I'm going to run quick. (laughs) Keep house. Later on in Timothy, he says, manage the house. You've heard me say this before. We always like to talk that the house is the man's castle. You heard that, eh? The home. I didn't be able to go. If anybody got a castle in the home, it's a woman. Because Paul shows in Timothy that is the home where God really brings to its fullest manifestation what it means to be feminine. Read First Timothy, you'll see that. It's in the home. He doesn't say, keep business, keep shop. It says, keep house. Paul later used the word being a homemaker, a keeper of the home, a protector of the home. That's what he's saying here. And then he says, do not allow Satan to get a foothold in your life and marriage. How? By not doing these things. If you don't do these things, the devil is going to have a foothold in your marriage. Well, you know what? I think I've made enough enemies for today. (laughs) So perhaps it would be wise for me to stop here now because Paul goes on to talk about, to give advice to the married. Remember, the unmarried is asking the question, to marry or not to marry? Guess what question some of the marrieds are asking? To divorce or not to divorce? (laughs) So Lord willing, we'll begin a detailed exposition of Paul's advice to married people regarding their marriage status. 
Now, I believe I made a lot of women enemies today. But please pray for me that my faith fail not. Because when I get into the other passage, I know we're going to make some more enemies. But remember this. God is giving us directives for our lives that would allow him to be glorified in our marriage or in our singleness. If we don't follow them, the Bible tells us now, when we don't follow the word of God, there's curse. Meaning negative things happen. But when we do, there's blessings. And that's all I can say to you. God says, my word will never return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which I send it forth. His word brings a blessing when it is received the way it is supposed to be received as the word of God and not the word of man. And all of God's people said, Amen. Any women in that? Amen. Amen.